You're listening to the Pharmacy Podcast Network. This is the Pain Pod. You want to see pain? Look at these. Welcome to the Pain Pod. The podcast for all things pain management. Hosted by the pain guy, Dr. Mark Grofoli. We'll be collaborating with numerous pain management experts, talking about substance usage disorders, the latest treatment modalities, and most important, important. focusing on the pain of our patients as leading providers of pain care. And now, here's our host, a man wanted in all 50 states, a suburban city-like mountain man, without the beard, from the hills of West Virginia, and certified in weapons of mass destruction response, it's Dr. Mark Garofoli. Welcome back, everyone. I'm very excited here today for this episode of the Pain Pod. Uh, come one, come all to the Pain Pod, as we always say. Here today, we have an, an amazing guest, and we're going to go over some pretty darn good stories and ideas here to really help everyone, uh, quite frankly, in our society uh, when it comes to pain management. You know, we as, as clinicians, as pharmacists, doctors, nurses, everyone, um, within the healthcare system do a lot uh, when it comes to trying to help people with pain management. But, you know, turns out we're not always involved because there's that magical aisle called over-the-counter self-care, analgesics, the word derived from Greek to mean without pain. Uh, a lot of times we're not even involved because folks can buy stuff, of course, in uh, dollar stores, grocery stores, gas stations, and of course, pharmacies alike. So here today, we're going to be talking about uh, some over-the-counter pain medications. And uh, I'd just like to start out with a, a quick little story. Uh, it's actually available in an American Pharmacist Association, APHA book. Um, it's basically a, a story talking about a patient coming to yours truly in a pharmacy one time. Walks up to the counter and he's like, hey, doc, what you recommend for back pain? And luckily on that day, that day, folks, we are human. We cannot say we would do it every single time. We are human. But that day I asked, well, what have you tried? And his response was, well, I tried Tylenol and that ain't worth. Okay, then. Uh, well, luckily on that day, I also remembered uh, with some really good pharmacy training to say, well, how many did you try? And his answer with uh, body language that was important to remember for, uh, was, well, 57 yesterday and 23 today. Folks, it was 10 o'clock in the morning on that day, so I don't think you need to do the math to calculate whether there was an acetaminophen overdose on that. None of us certainly had to that day, but then we had a very, very concrete discussion about how that gentleman needed to get immediate care because uh, life was going to be changing over the next two or three days, of course. Now, I share this story, and there's uh, certainly more detail in that APHA book and whatnot, but... Um, you know, the reality here is that we live, of course, in the opioid crisis or whatever anybody wants to talk about or call it uh, with real human stories, many sensationalized stories, but real human stories 
But in the background, approximately 50,000 Americans end up in the ER every year due to acetaminophen or paracetamol as the entire rest of the world calls it, right? So today we have with us Dr. Laura Meyer-Hunko. Quite frankly, as far as I'm concerned, one of the uh, world-renowned experts when it comes to over-the-counter pain medications and really, uh, you know, pain management overall in general. Uh, but she comes to us today as a pharmacist, of course, here on the Pain Pod on the Pharmacy Podcast Network. So welcome aboard, Laura. And Ed, what's your story? You know, in a nutshell, what, what's your story? Because the first thing we all want to know is, you know, who's got the mic? So what's your story? Well, thank you for that uh, very generous introduction. Uh, <laughs> I don't know if I would call myself an expert, but uh, generally, you know, very um, well involved with older adults in particular that love the over-the-counter aisle, particularly the internal and external analgesics. So, you know, kind of a forced expertise, I suppose. Um, so I am a um, hospice and palliative care pharmacist, and I work for the University of Illinois um, at Chicago College of Pharmacy on the Rockford campus. And Rockford is actually where I grew up. I went away for, you know, pharmacy school and residency, and I did a geriatric residency training. But then I came back, because this is where my, my family is, and my mom actually was um, in advanced stages of her cancer and actually having a lot of issues with pain. And Rockford really didn't have a well-developed palliative care program at that time. So although my training was in geriatrics, which did have some um, palliative care and hospice component, I kind of full-on threw myself into palliative hospice and pain management after, you know, kind of what I went through with my mom and really becoming, in, you know, motivated and passionate about improving pain care, particularly, I know there's going to be a probably a question later about how I define pain, but, you know, a holistic approach to pain uh, management is something that I really, um, really like to emphasize. So, yeah, so I've been at the College of Pharmacy now for, this will be my 10th year coming up in August. I take students on their clinical rotations, which include coming with me to two hospice organizations in Rockford. And then also as part of my role, I do internal medicine. So my students will run with the medical resident team. Um, I've also had some geriatric roles in there also. Um, there was a geriatric assessment clinic just north of the border in Wisconsin that I participated in until um, COVID hit. And I did in that instance see a lot of over-the-counter use, not just of analgesics, but also Benadryl, which is another one that's one of my, uh, you know, on my hit list in terms of OTCs that are problematic <laughs> in older adults. <laughs> So that's me. Well, thank you very much, Laura. And boy, I, I think the, the jig is up. Uh, you, 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 men, along with many others, of course, are starting to catch on to the one or two things I ask all of our guests. So we'll, <laughs> we'll come back to that later. But uh, sounds like you're doing a lot of helping people, quite frankly, and teaching others how to help people. So that's, that's quite frankly, just phenomenal to hear. Thank you. Um, so, you know, here, we're, we're here to talk about over the counter OTC uh, self care pain medicine. So you know, right off the bat, one of the toughest things is really just how to wrap our minds around these things, because the, those aisles are long, and there's a lot of options that are out there. So, you know, how would you recommend us as pharmacists and healthcare professionals overall to, to really classify OTC pain medicines? Okay, so it can be sometimes a little bit of a blurred subject. So especially when we're talking about patients, because we have the OTC products, 
which are regulated by the FDA and you know, the label has to be regulated by the FDA and that sort of thing. But they're also kind of mixing with dietary supplements. So I think it becomes kind of this um, nebulous concepts for not only patients, but also for providers. And although it over-the-counter really means non-prescription, so meaning it's in theory safe to use without clinician guidance and that patients can manage their own health. So this self-care concept and be more in control. Um, but also I think there is a hands-off approach with patients selecting their own products, but knowing what we, we see in older adults, particularly with overuse of the over-the-counter products and misuse potentially, you know, kind of unintentionally, that I think there still does need to be some clinician guidance. And I think pharmacists are best suited to be those people. One, because we some of us are right there as patients are selecting those products um, and others of, of us are in the hospital or in clinics and we really need to be asking about these products um, so that we can do a, a good med medication reconciliation, but also kind of guide patients. So, you know, in essence, over-the-counter kind of implies the patients on their own self-diagnosing and self-treating, um, but I'm, I'm kind of in the camp that even though that is the definition of non-prescription over-the-counter that I think particularly for vulnerable patients like older adults, we need to be there to, to guide. Absolutely. It's, it's inherent in our roles, of course. Uh, and hey, we, we're pharmacists. No matter where we go, once people know we're pharmacists, oh, there comes the questions, right? Mm -hmm. It's the holidays with family or strangers at a bus stop, either way, right? <laughs> um, so, uh, you know, so thank you for that, you know, considering that idea of, you know, how to wrap our heads around the big picture of OTC pain medicines. Um, going a little bit deeper into that, there's, you know, various formulations of products, of course, that are available. So how do we, you know, how do oral formulation OTC pain medications uh, compare and contrast? You know, you walk down an aisle and you might think uh, uh, a non-pharmacist might think there's 500 different options, but there's really not, of course. But how do they compare and contrast? So, I mean, in essence, the oral analgesics do at first glance seem complicated, but we can kind of simplify it. You know, if you think about it, um, we have two major oral products in terms of oral analgesics, in terms of the active ingredient, right? We have acetaminophen and within acetaminophen, we have different dosage formulations, which can potentially complicate things a bit because of the different options that are available to select. Then the other big bucket is the NSAIDs, which are then also divided into the non-selective NSAIDs that we have available over the counter, such as ibuprofen and naproxen. And they're available in a variety of dosage forms also, which we'll talk about in a, in a moment. But then the other major component of the NSAIDs is salicylates. And those can be broken down further into aspirin, which generally we should be encouraging patients to use aspirin just for the, the cardioprotective benefit in lower doses, because it really is a dose-dependent effect of aspirin for analgesia and anti-inflammatory effects. And you have to get to pretty high doses to get there. And I'm always thinking about older adults in my mind, maybe anticoagulants, other antiplatelets, and I'm thinking about the, the gastrotoxicity. So that's another uh, you know, soapbox for me. But also under salicylates, I think we have definitely underused products that may actually be safer in terms of uh, decreased um, uh, effect on platelets. 
and um, and better gastro um, effects, so less topical toxicity. And those are the non-acetylated salicylates. So we actually don't have a lot of those products out there on the over-the-counter shelves, but we do have um, magnesium salicylate tetrahydrate, which you're going to see in the product Doens for back pain. And that might be something that I would think about as actually potentially of a safer um, NSAID or salicylate for our patients because of its uh, kind of a weak effect or maybe negligible effect on prostaglandins. So I, I think those are interesting to think about but are often forgotten. And then there's the, another one of sodium salicylate that's in the Cystex product, which is for um, patients that need a urinary analgesic. So that sometimes, depending on where you practice or what pharmacy you're at, may be in a different aisle you know, by the Azo products and that type of thing. So those are the major like active ingredients that we have. But then these are often single agent, single entity products, but even more confusing is when they're combined with other analgesics also, which can kind of get us into trouble sometimes because there's this concept of brand extension where patients may tell us that there are, they're using say Excedrin, but we really need them to tell us more because there's three different Excedrin products. Two of them contain aspirin and one doesn't. And we're trying to reduce toxicity from having too much of a, you know, a similar entity on board, like an NSAID, we need to know those. So combination products can be challenging. Uh, also, we have caffeine, which I like to call the sidekick, which is also an Excedrin products and other Bayer's uh, back and body products. And we can't forget the, the, the role that caffeine can have also as a kind of a the sidekick to boosting not only the onset of analgesia, but maybe overall efficacy. So that's in our arsenal too. Um, speaking of how fast things work, when I really dug into the literature, it sounds like, it looks like through Cochrane reviews, that the faster the drug works, the greater overall efficacy it may have, particularly in acute pain. So I think this is why we have so many manufacturers getting into developing different types of formulations of these oral analgesics in the OTC aisle, because, you know, the ones that dissolve faster may have a uh, faster time to peak, which may be correlated with efficacy. So you see like solubilized ibuprofen, which would be like the liquid gels, the Advil migraine, that actually works faster than your standard ibuprofen tablets. So standard ibuprofen tablets, you know, the peak is maybe in one, one and a half hours where these liquid gels of solubilized ibuprofen may be 30 to 35 minutes. That'll also be true of ibuprofen sodium. So that's getting into the nitty gritty of really looking at these, these products and the differences. You also but that really does matter too for our patients. I mean, if, yes, exactly. I mean, think about it even, even individually ourselves. If we're in pain, I mean, do you want to wait an hour and a half or do you want to get it out of the way in a half an hour? That, that This is wonderful information. So. Mm -hmm. And also that the faster it works, there's some literature that suggests that it may also decrease use of additional analgesics. So, you know, you could maybe even reduce a patient's exposure to say NSAIDs by selecting an NSAID for their acute pain or their intermittent pain by selecting an NSAID that works a little faster. You may be able to get away with lower doses and, and less additional need for doses. So, so I think it's really cool. You know, it's something yeah, that and we should think about. 
And I appreciate you bringing uh, simplicity to the complexities. There's a, <laughs> yeah. There's a lot of. I tend to make things over complex. I don't know if I made it more complex, but I think. No, it's- no, you, you brought the simplicity. It, it's, there's just so many options out there. And, and again, this, this is in the hands of society. So we still need to be there for everybody. You know, that, that was just talking about our, our oral formulations. But then, gosh, go down further in the aisle and you end up in the topical section. And good golly. How in the world do you recommend we wrap our minds around the absolute abundance of topical? And it could be in a good way. Options are good, of course, but the abundance of topical over-the-counter pain medicines. And what do you recommend then? So I do like the idea of topical products because it's a local analgesic effect that spares systemic toxicity. Um, And so when I think about patients that I care for that are more vulnerable, either because of like older age or significant comorbidities, the topical product becomes something that is ideal. Though when you look at the -the over-the-counter aisle, it can be very overwhelming, I think, because of all the different topical products that contain similar ingredients. And so trying to find the product that matches the A-limit can be very tricky. Um, and that, and beyond that, we also have a lot of brand ex- extensions. So for instance, before we had a topical diclofenac, which is wonderful addition to our OTC aisle, I would often suggest to patients to use aspirin because it would have um, the salicylate trolamine. And ACR guidelines, the, the arthritis osteoarthritis guidelines, prior to this new addition, the previous version actually classified trolamine as a topical NSAID. So I was trying to help my patients reach for that product. But then I learned that Aspercream actually has, is a brand that has many extensions. So one Aspercream product will contain trolamine. Another one is Aspercream with lidocaine, which is just lidocaine. And then another one, I think, got into the menthol business. Right. So it's very tricky mm-hmm. to guide patients to the molecule that you want them to even have. Um, and then how do we even keep up to them? Because it, it's, you know, that the brand extension is very important. You know, brand loyalty ad- across the, the entire world is very important. But, you know, gone are the days of saying, oh, yeah, go down aisle five and it's down there. It's, you know, th- this is this isn't the trickiness of a, a patient coming with a head lice to the counter. And then it's like, eh, do you want to go out in the aisle or not? Well, of course you want to go help the folks, but you know, we actually got to go out there and, and, you know, be there at the selection time too. Um, I often think I, I had a patient come in one time that, that just kind of baffled my, my pharmacy staff, the whole team, because uh, she was asking to, for help finding Tylenol. And, you know, there's like 300 of them out there, if not more. So I, I strolled on down and, and uh, realized very quickly that uh, she was looking for the regular strength, not the extra strength. She didn't want the high octane stuff. Well, mm-hmm. you know, it took a good probably 90 seconds to find the thing. Now hold your breath for 90 seconds. That's what I'm talking about here. It took a while to find it. And that's not even a brand extension like with topical uh, agents here, like you, like you were articulating there, Lord. It, it's mm-hmm. There's so many different options. So... Um, it's, uh, you know, as pharmacists, we got to remember w- what the ingredients are and never presume because tomorrow, if not yesterday, a new product extension may have came out. So I have to keep up with the things. We always got to read what's in there, of course. Yeah, so right. I think so I, you know, in terms of generic or active ingredient is probably more important than using the brand, even mm-hmm. something patients are familiar with. But if you're like me and you're not actually in, you know, the community setting and, and going through the aisles on a regular basis, it's really hard to keep up. So I think that's a good point, Mark, that we need to 
kind of change the language that we use and flip over and look at the, the label on the back and encourage our patients to do so also. Absolutely. We're, we're, you know, in a way we become the translators. It's uh, for any fans of that movie, I think it was back in the 90s office space of, you know, the, the guy that talked, you know, from with the engineers and then with the, the customers, you, you got to be in the middle and translating from brand to generic and all the info in between. Mm-hmm. So, all right, I'm going to, I'm going to shift gears here for a, for a hot second here. Uh, here's an off the wall question for you. If you had five minutes with President Biden, what would you tell him or ask him about over the counter pain medicines? <laughs> so that's, that's a very interesting question. Um, so, you know, I'm not a very like political person. I kind of live under my own little rock, but I'm always a pharmacist. So I'd probably ask him, uh, what is he using over the counter and does he need any, does he need any help? Did he fall into the brand extension trap? Um, but also seeing, you know, what we could do in terms of you know, putting the plug in for more federal dollars going to the development of new analgesics, you know, with the opioid crisis and um, also, you know, some of the, the safety of our other oral analgesics, which, you know, in some patients are not safe. And, you know, and also putting a plug in for, you know, um, putting the pharmacist in, in the forefront and, you know, more encouragement of, of our role and probably showing him what pharmacists can do and trying to, at the very top of our government, showing him what pharmacists can do and how, how we're an asset to the healthcare team. Absolutely. Being ambassadors and, and, you know, really uh, propelling the, the, what's going on out there. There's chief medical officers and advisors everywhere, but what about CPOs or whatever, and not Star Wars C3PO here, but uh, for chief pharmacy officers and, and advisors along the way too. So now, Laura, one of the things you mentioned earlier, it, it caught my ear. So I'm going to ask a, a little extension of that. But there's there's misperceptions out there with over-the-counter pain medicines, kind of two sides of the coin. But the first side would be, you know, especially with your patients or even family, friends or whoever, you know, how do you address uh, any misperceptions of over-the-counter pain medicines or just over-the-counter medicines in general not being as effective as prescription pain medicines, you know, even though many times it's actually the same actual medicine. How do you go about that or recommend doing so? Yeah, and I think that's sometimes actually kind of the issue and the danger is there's a misconception that over-the-counter medications aren't necessarily medications, right, in the way that we think about it, that they're not prescriptions. So when doing like a med history, which is, you know, definitely in, in our wheelhouse as pharmacists, really reminding patients about the over-the-counter products that these are um, agents that are important for us to know, um, because there is the misconception that they're, you know, they're not prescriptions, so they're really, really not meds that need to be revealed to healthcare providers. Um, but I do try to, to, you know, share with patients that, you know, prescription products, there is, uh, you know, a pathway at times for prescription products to become OTC products. So if that is the case, then these agents aren't less effective than prescription products. For many of them, they might have once been prescription products, um, such as, you know, prime example is Voltaren gel or diclofenac gel, which is now available over the counter. And so I think that kind of is an illuminating idea for for patients and family. Um, And generally, you know, if you think about it, there are products like ibuprofen that is prescription and over the counter. The difference being is the lower dose, the 200 milligrams is over the counter, where the higher dose is 800 milligrams are prescription. It's the same, you know, molecular entity, but one is just, you know, can be used or is thought to be used 
uh, could be used safely at patient's own guidance and not needing the guidance of a professional. And the higher doses are thought to obviously need you know, professional guidance and prescribing. Um, so kind of you know, just creating that, you know, that illustration that you know, some of these OTCs were once prescription or are prescriptions just in higher doses. So these products are not benign and should not be used just willy-nilly. Yeah, it's a, they're still a car. They're just on a different road. And, and all, <laughs> like all roads are leading to helping with pain. So, you know, the, the other, the, the actual flip side of the coin that I was talking about there too, is just there's the misperceptions as well of having, you know, something's over the counter. Uh, there's myths, myths out there, misperceptions about, oh, well, you don't have to worry about any side effects or any safety concerns or anything like that. And boy, that, that can get folks in hot water really quick, hot water being ER or even worse, of course. But um, it, there was actually, um, I had the opportunity to work with uh, the folks at HISTA. It's the Health Sciences and Technology Academy uh, here in our, our own, uh, where I work at the West Virginia University School of Pharmacy and the whole Health Sciences Center. We, we did this project where, uh, you know, and keep in mind here, it's also, it's relatively current day over the last couple of years, it's ongoing as well. But uh, we were starting this research project, and one of my goals was, of course, hopefully to make an impact, you know, out in the community of raising awareness and information and knowledge out there for over-the-counter pain medicines. But then often people were asking me, and these were well-known experts and uh, illustrious folks, and they're like, Mark, why, why are you so concerned about acetaminophen and ibuprofen and aproxen and so on and so forth in the middle of an opioid crisis, if not at the peak even? And, you know, then there's that reality of the whole 50,000 Americans a year end up in the ER with just one of the products or the one of the generic uh, medications, of course. So I figured, well, we could team up with uh, Hista, which worked with uh, some middle school and high school, primarily high school uh, kiddos, uh, you know, looking to eventually go to college and get into science and technology overall. So no matter what we were going to be teaching them. So I, I had a, we had an interprofessional team. Um, we got together and we, we taught these students and then they went out into the community uh, and did uh, screening surveys to see what people knew uh, when it came to over-the-counter pain medicines, which, you know, general hypothesis would be minimal information, right? Well, kind of spot on. We, 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 you know, in the end result, we basically found that in our study, um, it was, a, I think it was about 85% answered like two-thirds of our questions incorrectly. And then you might be wondering, well, what kind of questions did you ask there? Well, really straightforward things like what's the difference between acetaminophen and Tylenol? Of course, no difference, just you know, the financials of brand and generic. Same thing for ibuprofen Motrin, same thing for naproxen and Aleve. And again, just even with those kinds of questions, vast majority were not getting them right. Uh, and then asking, like we were just talking about here, Laura, of the, you know, the efficacy and then safety of these products, is there any differences? And just really all over the board. Uh, so that, that's, that's a huge thing. You know, often how we help people, how we help our patients is with the most simple information out there. You know, maybe it's stuff we learned in our first year of pharmacy school, but boy, that's what comes on record on repeat to really help people. So, so thank you for your thoughts on that, of course. And it, you're, I think you, you already raised the flag earlier. You know, one of these questions that I have coming for you, of course, for all of our guests here on the pain pod. And if anybody wants to join us, let me know. Hit me up. <laughs> uh, but Laura, how do you define pain? So I like to borrow from the definition of total pain. I think that's kind of natural with my role in palliative and hospice care is, you know, there's the physical component of pain. 
But we cannot forget about the other components of pain that may actually, you know, kind of increase the intensity of pain. And that is the psychological, um, you know, aspect of pain, as well as the existential suffering, especially when someone has, you know, a significant pain syndrome or advanced cancer that may limit their functionality or even their their um, limit their life that can have ex, you know, significant consequences in terms of their suffering and that ultimately can worsen the pain experience. So I think it's very important to take a holistic approach um, and really understand not only you know, the, the physical stimulus and sensation that they feel, but also understanding what kind of meaning they associate to their pain and kind of the context of that pain to really help um, patients, because I think ultimately the concern is pain can then become suffering and all-consuming, and that then really takes away from quality of life and, and ultimately not living their lives. And I think I'm really getting into the idea of not only being able to offer medication recommendations as a pharmacist, but also offer pain self-management type of skills, which kind of borrows from cognitive behavioral therapy, but really helping patients recognize that, you know, doing things that they enjoy and reducing catastrophizing behaviors actually can improve pain or reduce pain. And that kind of falls into this definition that I like, which is, you know, the whole total pain experience, the whole holistic vision and view of pain. Couldn't have said it better. It's the the whole <laughs> pain, the whole patient. You know, there it's like the biopsychosocial approach, but mm-hmm. you know, the, the the overall environment. Very very good to hear. Um, one other thing you mentioned earlier, I, I know um, you know within your specialty, certainly working with our, our geriatric patients, but turns out there's a lot of kiddos out there. Uh, the misses and I have a, a five year old running around all the time, and boo boos happen, of course, but. You know, I just want to kind of go full circle here on the OTC pain aisle or idea for our conversation here. But, you know, do you have any pointers? Because these things get so convoluted as well. Everything OTC gets convoluted for pain management. But do you have any pointers for our healthcare professionals out there? And just how to remember pediatric doses of, you know, over-the-counter acetaminophen and ibuprofen, the the liquids that are available? Yeah, so... You know, as you mentioned, I I don't work with um, pediatrics. I know I have this bad joke that I work with, you know, adults in diapers, but not children in diapers. (laughs) Bad joke, probably not very nice. But because I don't work a lot in the pediatric population, and I think if you, if anyone is like me and doesn't have a lot of exposure to that, to always look up the dose, right? And I think that's true of, of anything that you don't have a lot of experience in. It just comes up every once in a while that I'd probably double check and, and look up the dose just to make sure that I'm not, you know, getting my wires crossed in my brain because I work with older adults. Um, and, and beyond just looking up the doses too, um, I also would be aware of the fact that like ibuprofen, for instance, comes in different concentrations of liquid. So really recognizing that when you do make a dosing recommendation, also advise, you know, the volume that they should be using based on the correct ibuprofen product, because that could get messy too. So yeah, I don't really have any pearls for how to remember it because um, I try not to commit it to memory. So I just look it up every time because uh, it's, you know, a population that I don't see a lot. So I feel that I would need to, should double check and always double check. Again, simplicity in the complexities, even saying look <laughs> it up, I, it, it helps us. Um, you know, you could be talking about a parent at 
two, three in the morning on a cold, dark night or whatever, you know, trying to remember something, even if they're a healthcare professional or not. And in the end, we, we got to look it up and look it up in the right places too. Um, and all the, the notes online for this episode, we'll have some uh, resources and references for folks, of course, too. So, all right. Now, in, in uh, kind of wrapping up here, one, one more universal question for all of our guests here. But Laura, what's your favorite pain medication and why? Okay. Well, unfortunately, you can't find it in the OTC aisle. <laughs> I didn't pick an analgesic on the OTC aisle. Um, but my favorite, again, I think plays into this idea of managing the whole person and all the other symptom clusters that go alongside pain. So my favorite medication actually for pain and other symptoms is dexamethasone. So this would not be something that we would use in patients with longer life expectancy because I don't want them to have to deal with the long-term consequences of using a steroid, but I do really like using dexamethasone in patients that are, that are end of life, um, particularly if there's any bone pain um, or as a co-analgesic alongside opioids for other types of pain, because not only is it anti-inflammatory and a good analgesic for, for bone, bony metastases, but also it often improves mood, appetite, energy, it reduces fatigue. So it addresses kind of many aspects of the total pain experience. So I think it's a, uh, you know, it's a good, good drug to use in patients that we really want to focus on their quality of life when they don't have the quantity of life. Sounds good. And I got to tell you, you're the, you're the first guest on the pain pot to go into a different realm like steroids. So fascinating. <laughs> it's uh, hey, this is this is why we started asking everybody, of course. So, all right. Well, that that's uh, kind of wrapping up here, folks. And uh, Laura, I really, really want to thank you for your time here today. It's the most valuable resource we have. I always say, uh, but I think your insights are really going to help us help others, um, us as pharmacists and healthcare professionals. When it comes to that daunting OTC self-care aisle of pain management, there's a lot going on out there. And I think we went over a couple of pearls and tidbits here today that could really help everyone. So thank you again, Laura, for your time here. Yeah, thanks for having me. I really appreciate it. It's Absolutely. And, and to our audience, you know, just a little uh, prelude here. You're going to want to join us for our next episode when we discuss the unholy trinity. Yes, that wording amongst the many, 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 many pain management related drug interactions uh, to be mindful of, you know, day in and day out when providing patient care to our communities. Just how do we navigate the many online drug databases spewing out different results for the same drug drug interaction reports? Well, folks, join us next time on The Pain Pod. If you'd like to join Mark on the pain pod, send us an email to publisher at pharmacypodcast.com. And make sure to share the show and subscribe on your favorite podcast directory. Thanks for listening.